0: Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. President Biden is in Japan for the G7 meeting. President Biden is in Japan for the G7 meeting, but will skip a much anticipated visit to Sydney for a meeting of the Quad, as well as a visit to Papua New Guinea, where he was supposed to meet with Pacific Island leaders. This as debt deliberations continue in Washington to avert a first-ever U.S. debt default. The G7 is focusing on how to counteract China's economic coercion and punish Russia for its invasion of Ukraine, including trying to close sanctions loopholes on uh, 70 people and entities. Russia has stepped up its attacks on Ukraine as Kiev again makes gains, and Vladimir Zelensky hits the road again, this time heading to the Middle East and Asia to drum up more aid. And Beijing is launching a wave of diplomacy with Japan and Europe uh, and engagement worldwide to counter the U.S.-led effort to pressure China to abide by international norms. The KMT has picked a candidate to challenge uh, the DPP's Tsai-in Wang, who is the president of Taiwan, Syria returns to the Arab fold. Questions about whether the State Department fouled up America's withdrawal from Afghanistan and tensions continue to soar in Israel with demonstrations in Jerusalem. Joining us today to review the week in Washington and the world are Dr. Patrick Cronin, the Asia-Pacific Security Chair at the Hudson Institute Think Tank, Michael Herson of American Defense International, one of Washington's top defense and aerospace lobbying firms, and former Pentagon Comptroller Dr. Dov Zakheim, who counts the Center for Strategic and International Studies among his many affiliations. Uh, Unfortunately, Jim Townsend, former the uh, Pentagon Europe chief, who is now with the Center for a New American Security, is unable to join us today, but hopefully will join us. Uh, we'll be back uh, with the team next week. Everybody, thanks so very much for joining us. Michael, very busy week. Let's dive right in. We're uh, negotiating a debt default. The president originally, uh, to avoid a debt default, uh, and then the president is not going to go to Papua New Guinea in the Quad meeting, rather, just going to do the G7 and return back to Washington. Staffs are in touch. The president had originally said that he wouldn't uh, negotiate, but now that he is negotiating, um, the more he gives, the more GOP wants. Uh, where are we in terms of uh, talks to avert a debt default as worldwide concern and panic about this are pretty much at a fever pitch and only
1: getting worse? Well, it's been another roller coaster week when it comes to the debt ceiling. I mean right after our last show on Friday, uh, there were some lawmakers that came out saying that they wanted now, uh, immigration and border policies to be included as part of the debt-selling discussion. And Congressman Chip Roy, who's a you know, leader on the right, uh, came out and said, every day the president continues to dilly-dally. In my mind, the price goes up, not down. Uh, so I think a lot of people's take on this, this was completely unreasonable. Every time you know they give an inch, they want to take a mile. Um, that talk kind of died down. But it, uh, on Monday, uh, Speaker McCarthy was very critical of the Democrats and actually slamming them for just not getting serious uh, with the negotiations. Uh, But over the weekend, staff continued to meet. They met earlier this week. Uh, The the big four met with Biden on Tuesday, and the dynamics have seemed to change as as the week has gone on, including uh, indications from Biden, who, as you mentioned, once had refused to negotiate, uh, is not only negotiating, but willing to make uh, concessions. Uh, From what I understand, uh, there'll be concessions uh, on things like work requirements uh, for some federal aid programs, Following back some uh, permanent, uh, some COVID money, uh, some permitting reform. And there's a feeling that there will be uh, some budget caps, though not at the FY22 uh, levels. Um, and after the meeting in the White House on Tuesday, to show I think things are on a much more positive path, getting serious, they really decided to shrink the amount of people in the room. There were just too many staffers and too many people negotiating. So this is really more between Biden and McCarthy. And Biden has assigned you know, some key folks now to run this negotiation. One is Steve Reschetti, who's a top aide, one of his trusted advisors. But more importantly, Shalanda Young, who is the OMB director. And she used to be the staff director of the House Appropriations Committee. She is extremely well respected by her Republican colleagues as well as her Demo- Democratic colleagues on the Hill. And she knows the budget inside and out. And I think with her at the table, a deal becomes much more doable. Uh, and and uh, McCarthy has you know, deputized uh, Garrett Graves, uh, which is one of his most trusted confidants uh, to lead the charge uh, for him. So you know uh, on um, Wednesday, you know, McCarthy was saying, I think at the end of the day, uh, we're not going to have a default. Uh, Biden echoed that sentiment uh, before he left, saying we're going to come together because there's no alternative. Uh, every leader in the room understands uh, the consequences of failure. And Thursday, uh, you know, McCarthy said, look, we're not there yet, but he wants a bill on the floor next week. So right. now you know, Schumer is going to have to keep everybody on standby uh, to come back to D.C. because the Senate is now on on, on, on recess uh, for a week. Now, despite all those positive developments, late Thursday, the House Freedom Caucus came out with a statement right. saying they want all discussions to stop. They want no further discussions with the White House until the Senate passes the exact same legislation that the House just passed on raising the debt ceiling. That is a uh, nonstarter is not going to happen. I'm still fairly confident that uh, these discussions are going to go forward, and whatever deal is struck, we—I don't think they expected the House Freedom Caucus to vote for it anyway. Uh, work requirements continue to be a sticking point, but uh, Biden has indicated that he would um, agree to uh, work requirements for some federal aid programs, just not uh, Medicaid. Uh, and but there are people that are getting nervous. I mean, there are Democrats now coming out saying, "Hey, you know, uh, if you—if there's going to be a motion to vacate, uh, we'll back you up with with Speaker votes." And right. mean, McCarthy has dismissed that. At the same time, uh, Leader Jeffries sent out a memo to his uh, conference, uh, getting field to start signing on to a discharge petition, which is one of the remedies we've talked about in the past. Though I think the timing uh, will not work, but they are now starting to collect signatures. Now, Democrats in the Senate feel that they are being left out of this discussion because you know we've talked previously that Schumer kept talking about "We're going to win, we're going to win." Well. You know, the Senate's job was also to pass a bill to raise the debt ceiling, and they didn't do it, and they were absent from these discussions. So now uh, there are uh, some senators saying, "Look, we should take this to the end, to, to threaten default, to make the Republicans blink." A bunch of senators just sent a letter to uh, President Biden asking him to invoke uh, the Fourteenth Amendment. Uh, but you know, it's—I uh, think it's underlying their concerns that they're not going to like the deal that they get at the end of the day. But I think it's too late uh, for them to 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 interject. The work requirements, you know, whether it's for, uh, you know, uh, welfare
0: programs uh, or food stamps or what have you. I mean, this is something Republicans have been pushing for a long time and is going to actually not sit well. uh, Right. Given the president already has problems on the left uh, to his left, he has problems to his right as well. um, That this isn't going to really help his position either. Right. I mean, this pretty much puts him into a pretty
1: problematic situation, even within his own caucus, doesn't it? It, it does with, uh, especially with the Congressional Black Caucus. Uh, I, they've been very outspoken on this, but it would be narrow. I mean, it wouldn't affect anybody's health care, so it wouldn't affect people on Medicaid and people who receive Temporary Assistance for Needy Families or food stamps. It would be people that are able-bodied and can work, or are not single parents who would need to stay home with their children. Um, but you know, at the same time, I've asked several Republicans this week, as well as Republican staffers. I don't understand this one because I don't understand how this one saves money at the end of the day. And no one can right. really answer that very well to me either. Right. The, the two answers I get on how it saves money is, well, it puts more people in the workforce and we collect more tax revenue. But these are really and low income workers. Right, Correct. exactly. So They're gonna be right. exempt
0: from taxes anyway, given exactly. what the tax structure is uh, right. since George and, W. Bush, right? Right, exactly.
1: And then the other answer I get is, well, then people who don't participate in the workforce then would see getting the benefits and that would save money as well. So it's not a really a good answer. But I still believe, from what I understand at the end of the day, and I think Biden's already opened the door. It's too late from the close it. there'll be a, a narrow opening for uh, some work requirements.
0: Let me uh, let me take you to the uh, issue of the NDAA and appropriations. We uh, talked to Pentagon Comptroller Mike McCord uh, uh, on Wednesday um, and one of the uh, questions, you know, we didn't really discuss that much of what's to come, but rather what the implications and the impact of a potential debt default would be on the Defense uh, Department, uh, because pretty much you got to get that done before we move forward on any of these other things that are all stalled. Walk us through where all of these other, right, I mean, we had uh, Republicans stop uh, the markup process. Where, where are we more broadly with the NDAA and appropriations at
1: this point? Okay, it's a, actually a very good question. And I, and I think uh, the wheels are starting to turn again. Uh, I still think it will be difficult to have anything, everything done next week. I think it could. Uh, Janet Yellen came out reasserting that uh, June 1st is a job dead date. So I think a short-term extension is still possible. And no, I don't think they would need a 30-day extension at this point. Uh, so I, I'm still fairly confident we're not gonna default. Uh, they're already making plans to restart the NDA markup process. Uh, if a deal is done and passed off the floor in early June, that full first full week of June, they would go to subcommittee mark. Uh, the third week of June, they would end up in full committee mark. And then the NDA would be on the floor uh, the week after 4th of July recess. And that's pretty much the time frame that they worked with last year uh, when the Democrats were still in charge. So that would not really put them uh, too far behind. Now, uh, as far as appropriations goes, the Republicans marked up four bills in subcommittee this week. Uh, one, they marked up the Milcon uh, VA bill. And showed that they were adding money to veterans benefits to take that talking point away from the Democrats. Uh, they marked up the Homeland Bill to add money uh, to border security, take that talking point away from Democrats. Uh, they, added, they, they marked up the Ledge Branch Bill where they made cuts to show that they could make cuts. And they marked up the Agriculture Bill uh, where they made cuts, but they added money for things like the FDA and Food safety inspections, again, to take that talking point away from the Democrats. So uh, there is a sense of optimism uh, going into the weekend. Let me uh, bring uh, Dove
0: uh, into the discussion uh, at this point. How do you see uh, the situation? Uh, and, and then I want to also ask you about how the Pentagon managed to find three extra billion dollars in Ukraine uh, aid uh, money uh by uh you know i mean they said that it was an error but actually it was by actually changing the valuation of what it is i think that we're sending uh to ukraine talk to us about the first part uh of the equation first and then uh give us your sense on sort of the financial maneuvering we would have asked uh uh Under secretary mccord this question uh but unfortunately the story had not yet surfaced at the time that we had uh the conversation
1: with him
2: to begin with in terms of managing uh given that there might be a default, you know, the question really is how long the, def- the uh, default would run. Because if you remember, and I, I think I mentioned this in passing uh, last week, if you remember when the government shut down, the last time Bob Hale was in charge uh, was the comptroller and the current comptroller, Mike McCord, was his deputy. And what they essentially did was look for money that hadn't yet been spent. They moved money around and they were able to pay everybody. So that's one thing that could happen again. And the other thing is, uh, when there's a default, the government still can prioritize what bills it'll pay. And my guess is it will prioritize paying the military their salaries and maybe paying for some operations and so on. So there is a little bit of flexibility. The flexibility runs out as this thing extends. But of course, if McCarthy and the president... If their optimism holds up, then the issue won't apply. On the question of of, uh, the the, uh, missiles being shipped, I think it's really up to the Pentagon to value how it wants to value. I remember years ago, uh, after the Falklands War, the British needed F-4 aircraft. And uh, I was uh, handling that. And uh, I went to the Air Force. We got F-4s out of what's called the Boneyard, which is Davis-Montham, where all these old aircraft uh, are left to die. And we sold them to the Brits for 900,000 each, and then the Brits upgraded them. Now, would it have to have been 900,000? It could have been 2,900 million. Who knows? Uh, The point is the Pentagon is the one that does the valuing. So if they sold these missiles at uh, their original prices, or maybe even discounted, because after all said and done, they're old, uh, you could argue that um, they they were, you know, frankly, transferred at uh, b- basement prices, bargain basement right. prices. So, uh, you know, it, it's it's not really that big of a surprise if you think about it, since they're the ones that do the valuation.
0: Patrick, Chinese don't miss any opportunity to characterize the United States as irresponsible. Look at the drama. They can't you know their houses in in disorder. What's the kind of rhetoric we're seeing uh, from the Chinese as they do this diplomacy? And we'll get to the G seven in a moment. But they're trying to do all of this, you know, diplomacy to basically, you know, separate everybody from the United States. There's a charm offensive with the Japanese, a charm offensive with the Europeans, uh, right? Um, I think uh, as we were preparing for this, there's going to be uh, an air show in Mal. You know, the Chinese demonstration uh, aerial demonstration team is going to be in Malaysia. You know, how how are the Chinese? portraying all of this as as we go through this process?
3: Well, exactly as you suggest. Uh, For instance, just after the president announced that he would not be going to Australia for the Quad meeting there, um, the the Chinese immediately reached out and invited Prime Minister Albanese to come to China as soon as possible. And they announced that they were um, reneging on the kind of sanctions they imposed on um, $600 million, at least Australian dollars, uh, of trade. Um, you know, that's a pretty significant olive branch to Australia, exactly ready to go just an hour after the White House announced this. So, that you know, incredible timing. Meanwhile, the whole counter-programming that Xi Jinping is undertaking here in Xi'an. I mean, he's hosting uh, the Central Asian Summit, and he's uh, announcing not only new economic ties, but new security ties with Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan and Uzbekistan and Turkmenistan and Kazakhstan. Um now, that comes at US expense, but it also comes, uh, very interestingly, at Russia's expense. It shows that Russia is a diminished power and that China is moving into that space and doesn't care. It's Russia's sanctioned. So they're going to build uh, one of the railways now outside of Russia. Um, and uh, they're they're moving into that space and they're very happy to be doing so, even while their envoy just met in Ukraine and pretended to be a, a force for mediation, when in fact, they, they just want to be seen as showing that they care about diplomacy. Meanwhile, they're they're collecting uh you know the, the sort of the the goods here from from both the war in ukraine and from it, where america stands at the moment meanwhile they're putting out lots of propaganda nothing new there um Xinhua, the state news agency has a major uh, major report out on uh, coercive diplomacy it turns out that according to Shenhua, that the United States invented and is the master of coercive diplomacy, and that China never engaged in this. This is not something China does. Um, so that's that's news, and I'm glad they're bringing that news, you know, right to the heart of uh, all Chinese readers. Um, you know, so it, 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 meanwhile, um, if you look at other news that's not coming out of China, like the Associated Press, they've just looked at, freshly at China's loans and how they're pushing a dozen uh, countries that are most indebted to China. Uh, into the brink of collapse. Now, the thing is, this is coming out of a press which will equally criticize America and Europe and Australia and Japan. But here they're reporting accurately that Pakistan's debt and Kenya's debt and, and Laos and Mongolia's, Zambia and on, um, they're getting secret loans. Uh, the Chinese are not forgiving them and they're on the brink of collapse. Uh, so China loves to be able to control the narrative. And they're certainly trying to do that.
0: And a word from our sponsors Leonardo DRS and HII sponsor our global coverage, General Atomics and Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage, Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage, and GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval coverage. Um, Dov, uh, there's one point that you wanted to add, or, right? I mean, this was a blow. There was a lot of disappointment about the about the president not going to Papua New Guinea. I think uh, President Obama was the last president to visit there uh, during his Asia swing. Patrick, correct me. I think it was in 2011. Um, you know, what's 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 your sense on the president missing uh, what is considered to be an important visit and an important time to meet with Pacific Island nations at a time the Chinese are really trying to butter him up.
3: Were you referring to the uh, 20? I'm sorry, just it was Obama in 2013 missed the 2013, because the government closure and the politics that were ongoing.
0: Indeed. But uh, go ahead, Dove. You wanted to add one thing, and then Patrick, want to get your sense on that as well.
2: Yeah, I I think the president made the right decision for a a very simple reason. The risk that uh, the government would default is far more. Uh, significant to America's position in the world than the risk of missing those two meetings. In fact, if he indeed can pull this off, and I suspect uh, that, uh, and I think Mike referred to this, if the crazy right in the Republican Party tries to throw McCarthy out over this, my guess is uh, if the deal is halfway decent to the Democrats, they'll support McCarthy. McCarthy. And that'll be the deal. He stays in office. And so that would resonate throughout the world that Biden can really deliver on the most important thing, which is America's financial, economic and frankly, political reliability. Uh, If he were, on the other hand, to go to these meetings uh, and the debt seal and we defaulted, nobody's going to pay attention to the meetings. So I think he made the right decision here, and I'm just hoping that uh, all the optimism that Mike uh, really comes to pass. Does the, I wanna
0: just go to Michael for a second. I mean, does McCarthy become more bipartisan and a little bit easier to deal with if Democrats work with them and help save his job?
1: Well, look, McCarthy is, <laughs> I would argue- That's a tough being, question. <laughs> yes, it is. Look, um, I don't envy McCarthy's uh, position with, with a five seat majority. But uh, I would argue that he's being bipartisan by negotiating with the White House and the terms of the deal that we see taking shape. Now, who knows if this is really what it's going to be? Um, definitely are concessions made by the White House. But these are also going to be major concessions made by the Republicans, too, as to what they passed. Because a lot of the folks felt, I think mistakenly so, that what they passed was going to be the floor, not the ceiling. But, you know, those group of moderate Democrats, which I think are really are patriots who step forward to try and quietly reassure um, you know, McCarthy and folks that they would have his back if the guys came after him. Um, he came out pretty forcefully saying, uh uh-uh, uh, you know, I don't want that, I don't need that. And that same deal was offered to John Boehner, uh, too, toward the right. end of his speakership. And Boehner chose to resign uh, rather than stick around and get the Democrats to back him up. So uh, I don't think uh, we're going to get there anytime soon. I'm uh, speaking of
0: Discord. Uh, Tommy Tuberville uh, has had a hold. We've been discussing it. You were among the first people uh, on the program, I think, to discuss it many months ago. Uh, and then we have the entire George Santos uh, serial liar drama, right? He's going finally to the ethics uh, committee. Um, you know, and if he goes away, then it it's only a four seat majority, right? I mean, so this is how um, somebody with no ethics who probably shouldn't be in the body uh, and lied to get there. Um, you know, in ordinary terms,
2: you would have had a resignation. Anyway, where,
0: where are we on both of these
2: issues? I just jump in. I, I understand, sure. what, but there's a huge difference between where McCarthy is and where Boehner was. Um Boehner never had the kind of problem that McCarthy did, and he certainly didn't have to go through a zillion ballots to get the job and practically sell his soul to do it. And so uh, given what McCarthy's already been through, I just don't see him resigning um because uh he made some kind of compromise when everybody's going to call him a hero uh
1: Uh, yeah i i agree i don't think he's going to but i don't think there's going to be motion to vacate the chair as a result of this deal either that's and and if
2: that's the case then biden looks great and i return to my point relative to that the uh, the uh the quad meeting and even the pago pago meeting just pale and insignificant. In we're going to come to that in
0: a minute patrick uh one more question so tuberville santos how does this okay. play out and what
1: does this mean uh for defense yeah so it's, it's an ongoing story as you know i mean week by week this is still uh uh continuing to heat up and more republicans in the senate are, you know, carefully, but also, uh, you know, publicly coming out saying they do not agree uh, with what uh is doing, including the ranking Republican on the Senate Armed Services Committee. Roger Wicker uh, came out again this week saying that this is not an approach that he would have uh, chosen. Um, and then uh, Senator Bill Cassidy uh, also came out this week uh, expressing concern about this. And It's really taking kind of an odd uh, turn. Uh, so. In an appearance last week on a radio program in Alabama, Senator Tupperville was asked if he believed white nationalists should be allowed to serve in the military. And Tupperville's response was, they call them that, I call them Americans. So when the story took off on Twitter and social media, Tupperville's office walked it back, you know, issuing a statement saying that the comments simply voiced skepticism about the notion that there are white nationalists in the military, not that he believes they should be in the military. But, you know, um, earlier this week, uh, Tupperville came out saying, you think, a white nationalist is a Nazi. I don't look at it like that. I look at it a white nationalist as a Trump Republican. Um, that's what we're oh, called my. all the time, right? So like, that just—I'm very—I don't understand that. It's very puzzling, and it, also at the same time, uh, a staffer who works for Congressman Paul Gosar in the House was revealed that he is a avid follower of neo nationalist uh, Nick Fuentes, uh, and that's beginning some uh, negative attention. So, uh, and and on top of that, there's now additional concern about space command not being moved to Alabama uh, because of the abortion policies in that state. And I would also think that Pepperville is not helping the case of his state to get uh, space command moved from um, uh, Colorado to Alabama since it is an executive branch decision.
0: Right. Well, uh, listen, I mean, a lot of this stuff is to me a little bit uh, uh, baffling, whether you're looking at the entire Disney episode and a variety of other uh, episodes where you're like, look, I mean, if, eventually some of these things are going to be very good for your state if you just moderate your policies a little bit and, and you might end up getting
1: uh, uh, more uh, at the end of the day. And on Santos. So Santos is taking a very interesting turn here. Uh, so uh, you know, Democrats moved forward with a resolution uh, this week to expel him. Now, it's a private revolution, resolution, but it requires, um, I think, a two-thirds majority so the Republicans could block it, but they were able to block it by sending it uh, to the Ethics Committee and, and encouraging them to, um, to expedite uh, their review. Now, at the same time, the Justice Department now apparently has privately asked the Ethics Committee to hold off on this probe uh, since they're uh, investigating. him. And traditionally, Ethics Committee usually defers to the Justice Department, but not in this case, and it's bipartisan. Uh, The Republicans and Democrats both do not. Uh, they're refusing to comply with DOJ's request because they feel that the breadth of allegations against him, uh, there's plenty of room for them to maneuver without interfering with DOJ's case. And they've cited examples of things that DOJ is not looking at. Like, for example, uh, apparently uh, a former Santos aide claimed that the, that he uh, uh, engaged in sexual misconduct. Uh, so that's not within the, uh, the purview of the DOJ, and they're not looking at that. Uh, Santos uh, also failed to file um uh, uh, proper disclosures on the source of the money that he loaned uh, his campaign, which was not covered in his indictment. And uh, there's other uh, false statements that he made on financial disclosures and other official documents that the ethics committee is going to look at um, and and also ab- failing to abide by the code of official uh, conduct for members. So right. uh, that's going to. And also, I, I did talk to some senior Republicans earlier this week about this, and they are resigned to the fact that Santos eventually is going to be expelled from Congress and he is not going to be there right. and they're going to have a special election in New York. And it's one that they will likely lose. And as you mentioned earlier, that five seat majority will be end up being a four seat majority.
0: Uh, Patrick, you've been uh, very patient. Uh, Dove uh, talked about the Papua New Guinea uh, and that the president will be ahead of it, um, even if he has to unfortunately uh, skip a meeting that was uh, deemed to be very important. Um Give us uh, your sense on what the implications are. And if that's, I mean, it's obviously a necessary trade-off. At the end of the day, he's president of the United States first. um, But what are the implications of missing the meeting from your standpoint?
3: Well, I I agree with uh, Dove that I don't think the president had any choice. He made the right call. He has to deal with the uh, country, keep it solvent before he does anything else. But unfortunately, when you cancel a trip, That everybody expects, especially the historic first trip to Papua New Guinea of any American president um, and also a consequential quad meeting in uh, Sydney that's been well prepared. Uh, They even had the president's limo, the beast, already on the ground. Um, And you cancel that uh, after the prime minister of Australia has just gone to bed and he finds out in the morning uh, the trip is off. Um, You know, that unfortunately reinforces the perception that has been built over time that the Americans have a failure to follow through. And when you think just about uh, the pivot to Asia of the Obama administration, you know, missing that 2013 conference, but also not fully funding the vision of, 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 the, of the pivot, the rebalance, um, you know, Trump um, rightly sort of reorienting U.S. national security toward the China competition, but alienating many allies and partners along the way and, and being very divisive. And then you've got Biden, who's working with the allies and partners, but he cannot fully execute because domestic politics get in the way. And and while our closest allies and partners will understand that, and if, as Dove says, uh, the president is able to achieve some significant things, almost all of this will be forgiven and and then some. But we did miss an opportunity in Papua New Guinea, especially because in Papua New Guinea, um, we have promised, along with our closest allies, billions of dollars of infrastructure assistance that has not been forthcoming. If we don't deliver on what we promised, um, it will be noted once again. So we have to follow through. The quad meeting, they're actually going to do a quad on on the margins uh, in Japan. And I think we'll be able to do 90% of what we were probably going to do in Australia. It's just the Australians will not get the big uh, Sydney Opera House uh, kind of uh, a portrait, um, but nonetheless, uh, you know Modi will be down there, and, and the Prime Minister of India, and, and they'll they'll still get some very senior diplomacy. And Albanese will be is in Japan, uh, and there'll be uh, some very good discussions with Australia.
0: Um, and uh, look, why don't you start us off uh, today uh, on the Russia discussion, and, and then I can go to Dove uh, and to Michael uh, in, in terms of uh, support. Um, what the G7 also is trying to do is to punish uh, the Russians. Um, some of the maneuvers uh, the alliance has made, uh, especially on uh, setting of the oil prices, are having a negative impact on Russia, which is very positive. Uh, and now a whole series of additional moves to um sort of close a lot of the sanctions loopholes the Russians uh, have been using that have uh, you know, effectively meant that their economy is actually growing you know, a little more quickly than, uh, for example, the French and German economies or at least that was the, 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 the narrative uh, even until a few weeks ago. From, from your standpoint, is this shutting the door sufficiently uh, to punish the Russians for what they managed to do because the Russians are stepping up their attacks on Kiev, I think it was you know, nine or 10 straight days uh, or nine or 10 days this this month where there have been large barrages against uh, Kiev, even though the, the Ukrainians are defending themselves. How does this play in? Is this shutting the door as far as you're concerned on the Russians?
3: Well, let me put that in the context that this may be the most consequential G7 that certainly Japan has ever hosted. This is the sixth time that Japan has hosted a G7 since it began in 1975. Um, So you have the war in Ukraine going on. Uh, You have growing intensified competition with China. You have the whole mess about uh, future of technology and exports, export controls and competition economically. And and then you've got the developing world's concerns. Um, You add all of these things together, potential for war and order and rules. There's a lot here. And yet I've never seen uh, not just the G7 countries, but some of the other allies and partners who have been invited, including South Korea, and India and Australia, uh, you know, are more united than ever on these issues, including even on the Russian issue, although I know India is an exception in terms of they don't want to criticize uh, Russia directly, but the G7 countries plus are definitely uh, imposing the cap on energy. Um, And, uh, and they're, they are unified in wanting to make sure that Russia uh loses as long as it wants to invade its neighbors. So they they are committed to that and they're working closely with Europe on this. And meanwhile, Europe's reciprocating to Asia. They're they're basically getting ready, both the EU and at the Vilnius summit in July, to, to talk about the economic sanctions they would impose on China if China were to invade uh say Taiwan. Um so there is great unity here among US allies and partners on this. Is it enough you ask Vago on Russia? Well Probably not, but it depends on what we're hoping to achieve here. What is our strategic objective? It's it's noteworthy and it's not trivial that the CIA is literally advertising for young Russian professionals who are the most disaffected group in Russia, because this war is still mostly popular within Russia from all accounts. But among young educated professionals, and many have fled Russia, they're extremely disaffected. And literally the CIA is going in and saying, hey, go on to tour, our encrypted communications platform. And uh, sign up, you know, because we're disgusted with Russia's actions too, and it's not trivial because it, it points to the fact that Russia is uh, wasting away, um, and they face enormous costs from what they have done here by trying to invade uh, Ukraine and use brute force to get their way, and um, even China is trying to, you know, get credit for mediating while hosting, as I mentioned, the Central Asian countries uh, at Russia's expense to a large degree. So. Um, I think Russia's paying a huge price. Uh, I can't can't determine whether it's enough or not. The fact that Zelensky, after a successful tour through Europe, stopping in Saudi Arabia, is on his way to Hiroshima, it really is going to highlight the unity and the connectivity between European security and Asian security. They're indivisible. I think in Hiroshima, he'll be able to highlight the horror of war and show the depravity of the nuclear saber-rattling that Putin engages in. And finally, it'll show that G7 is willing to do more than just economic policy, but that economic and security policy are intertwined and the G7 is maybe more important than ever.
0: Um, and, and those ads have been uh, uh, been ongoing for uh, a little while uh, in terms of trying to recruit um, agents to uh, recruit Russians uh, to the US side. In fact, even striking a patriotic tone that you'd be helping your country ultimately by, uh, by doing it. Um, Uh, Dov, um, where do we stand on the war? Uh, It it looks like the Ukrainians are clawing back uh, uh, some ground. Uh, Certainly an enormous and highly successful trip by Vladimir Zelensky uh, in terms of the commitments uh, that he's gotten uh, during his swing uh, through Europe, whether it was from uh, the Germans and the amount of aid the Germans made available another $3 billion, uh, which was uh, very meaningful, including on air defense uh, and, uh, you know, the, the vehicle deals Rishi. Uh, obviousl,y uh, agreeing uh, to do F sixteen training in the, in the country, which we've discussed on on the program before. Uh, from your stand, you know, at the same time, the Russians are stepping up attacks on Kiev. Where, where do we stand right now in the dynamic? And do you think the moves that are being made in the G seven are going to be sufficient to change Russia's course at all on this conflict?
2: Well, to answer the last question, not yet. Um, clearly, Mr. Putin uh, still has his heels dug in, but there are a couple of a number of developments. Uh, that uh, should be borne in mind. And one is that in addition to the uh, energy cap that Patrick just mentioned, the price of oil has actually declined uh, quite significantly over the last few months. Uh, it, the Russians aren't the only ones who are going to feel that. They're feeling it in the Middle East as well. But the, for Putin, if the price of, of Oil goes down, that really begins to hurt because it intensifies all the the effect of all the other sanctions. So that's one major point. A second point is you mentioned the German uh, 3 billion. The Germans, that puts the Germans actually ahead of the British, uh, which shows you that uh, Chancellor Schultz has been able to pull it off to get Germany to come four square behind Ukraine. And that's a major message to Moscow because the Russians have always been paranoid, with good reason, uh, about the Germans. And now all of a sudden, the the batting order is U.S. first, Germany second, Britain third. That's a big deal right there. And finally, uh, the F-16 training. This is Britain's way of working with the Europeans that have F-16s to put pressure on Washington to at least let the uh, Europeans transfer their f-16s uh to ukraine now one of the stories that the pentagon kept putting out was oh it'll take 18 months it's so complicated blah 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 now they're admitting that the ukrainians are training up in four months which isn't surprising that they've, they've been fast in training on just about everything they've gotten well four months means that they could already be operating f-16s during the summer so uh My guess is this thing's going to start moving quickly. And since that is one of the things where uh, it could be, uh, the G7 could be the scene of tremendous pressure on Biden to at least yield uh, on European transfers of F-16s. And that will be yet another message to Moscow. Um,
0: Michael, where do we stand on uh, Ukraine aid uh,
1: in uh, Congress? Earlier this week, the White House was saying that they were not planning to ask Congress for any new Ukraine funding uh, before the end of the fiscal year at the end of September. And, and we've talked about this in previous podcasts, and I've mentioned how I thought that it was a mistake. Uh, and the White House said that you know, thanks to the support we've got, we've got the resources we need into the end of the fiscal year. And you know that was coming amid some anxiety on the Hill because you know what they say is that you know the administration was really not giving a lot of clarity on the issue because uh, of the 36 billion in emergency supplemental funding that was passed last year. Um, you know, according to the Hill, they felt only 2.3 billion remains available for presidential drawdown authority, and four billion uh, remains for Ukraine uh, security assistance initiative. So, congressional staffers were saying, based on how much the administration's been spending every month, they believe that the remaining funds could run out sooner than September, possibly as early as July. And they had not heard from the administration officials about whether the White House would request additional funding once that money is uh, depleted. Uh, now, to make matters worse, on uh, on Thursday it was discovered it was well not discovered uh, it was announced that there was a, a, a massive three billion dollar uh, miscalculation on the aid to Ukraine. Uh, and it's something that the administration known for two months, but they did not let Congress know about it uh, until Thursday. Uh, apparently, the department had overestimated the value of arms sent to Ukraine from existing stockpiles, uh, and that the DOD officials well, and, evaluating- and,
0: and that was the thing that uh, Dove and I discussed, right? That it depends right. on what kind of valuation you use on some of these systems, right?
1: Yeah, exactly, right? So because of that miscalculation, it looks like there's an extra $3 billion that can be added to uh, the Jordan Authority. So- you know, I think in some respects that may um, take some of uh, 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 the heat off, but, you know, uh, waiting to the end of fiscal year, to me, it doesn't make any sense because uh, Congress is going to be out the entire month of, of August and the House is out the first two weeks of September. So it really doesn't give you a lot of time. Uh, and as we mentioned before, they're not just going to rubber stamp. The request from the administration, and there's going to be a lot of pushback on the non-military aid. So, you know, we're in mid-May, June and July are all we really going to have left to work on this. And I would suggest that the administration, if they're serious about this, start working with Congress as soon as possible, especially uh, right when the debt ceiling discussions are over
0: the strategic miscalculation was not doing this in the lame duck session and raising uh, the debt limit and raising it so high that we didn't have to worry about it for a couple of years. That was the big strategic mistake. Um, Patrick, an enormous uh, number of other stories. We've, we've, we've got to move on because we've got about uh, 10 minutes left uh, in the program. And I want to get uh, Dove and Michael sense also on uh, what's going on in the Afghanistan descent. Uh, As Dove put it, uh, Antony Blinken seems like he's uh, blinked. I'm sorry for the pun. Uh, Walk us through some of the other headlines uh, in Asia. Obviously, KMT candidate to run against uh, Tsai in the upcoming uh, elections uh, and any other story that you think is important enough to discuss on the on the program.
3: Sure. Well, let me just say a few words more about the G7 in Hiroshima, because a world without nuclear weapons is what Prime Minister Kishida would like it to be known for. It's very popular in Japan. Uh, it, it's obviously not going to affect and move the world on this issue, but it puts down a marker that uh, these countries are supporting non-proliferation at a time when China is building up, when North Korea is building up, when there's a lack of transparency, when they're basically violating what uh, Kishida had called the four uh, point action plan on, on nuclear nonproliferation proliferation. Um, and the fact that he's meeting with President Yoon not just this week and bilaterally, but also at a memorial uh, commemorating Koreans who were killed in, in the bombing of Hiroshima uh, is a reminder to South Korea that uh, Japan really thinks that nuclear weapons are a bad idea. Very interesting when Japan and South Korea are so dependent and more dependent today on America's nuclear umbrella than ever before uh, for maintaining deterrence. Um, the G7 is also significant for what they're doing on semiconductors, and there's a whole uh, discussion that needs to be had here because critical is a time when artificial intelligence is is seen as so important. But but managing the flow of the most advanced chips is something where the Europeans and the and the Asian allies and America are increasingly aligned and in making major investments, uh, and, and both in Asia in the United States, uh, and that's going to have rap- repercussions for the long term, because really, I think what the allies and partners are trying to do is to, s- is to slow down the PLA's modernization attempts while we get our act together in terms of our semiconductor uh, chip lead and advantage, but also uh, the diversification so we're not so vulnerable to a strike, including in Taiwan. So that brings me to the Taiwan crisis. Yes, the election in January is going to be fundamental uh, for the future of Taiwan, because now, the Kuomintang, the Nationalist Party, has uh, tapped uh, a fairly moderate uh, voice, a safe voice, the one who polls the best uh, for the KMT, at least, the 66-year-old a former policeman who's now uh, twice served as mayor of New Taipei City. Um, and he has uh, offered the strategic ambiguity from a Taiwan version of saying uh, he opposes, like all KMT, independence of Taiwan. But he also has said, curiously, that he opposes the China's uh, Chinese formula of one China, two systems. But he hasn't clarified what he supports. Um, and that is an attempt to try to uh, attract uh, the independent vote. Uh, and so we'll see whether he does that in January. And meanwhile, uh, you know, Li Qingde, the, the vice president, who is the Democratic Progressive Party candidate, he's not well known either here in the United States. But if him, if he has someone like Xiaobi uh, Kim... Who's the de facto ambassador for uh, Taiwan here in the United States, as his vice president, he'll probably seen, be seen very much as the continuity candidate with Tsai Win. So we'll have to see how this plays out, uh, lots at stake. We had something like the op-ed in the Washington Post on Thursday, uh, written by Bridget Colby and Alex Valles uh, Brown, two uh, CNAS uh, alum, uh, all, you know, saying we have to prioritize Taiwan. It was very critical of support for Ukraine. I don't agree with their uh, sort of their their choice. I know there are trade-offs, but if we lose and let Ukraine fall to Russian aggression, um, the consequences of that are much greater than they suggest. And we can do both with the help of allies and partners, I believe. Um, But they're not wrong to say that we are not producing the inventory we need for munitions um, and for anti-access and area denial kind of equipment. Um, And I think that's what Secretary Austin was testifying about this week. Uh, And it is part of the budget and it's part of the Pacific Deterrence Initiative. It may not be enough and it's not fast enough, but uh, that's where we should be putting our effort is to enhance that uh, both at home and with allies and partners. Um, Other issues in the news, the new spy satellite, the first one ever for North Korea. um, Kim Jong-un brought his young daughter, Kim Jue, who's really being groomed for leadership, I believe, and there's going to be a a real shootout between um, the 10-year-old and uh, Kim's sister, eventually about which woman is gonna be the potential successor, I, I would argue. But the first spy satellite to make sure that they've got the reconnaissance and intelligence, domain awareness on US and South Korean exercises and other military deployments and moves, This is what they're hoping to get when they put this up into space. Um, Their last uh, satellite launch failed back uh, seven years ago. So this one is likely to succeed, we assume, and it's likely to happen soon. Um, Meanwhile, the Chinese are facing lots of other headwinds uh, that are worth mentioning. The the massacre in Central African Republic, um, because this is where strategic minerals are so critical. And here they've got a gold mine, and nine Chinese are killed, Um, and the Central African Republic military was nowhere to be seen, really. The four troops that were still there all survived, surprisingly, uh, obviously did not get into a fight. Um, And, well, there's a lot of finger pointing about whether this was rebels, because rebels usually want money, they don't want to assassinate, or whether this was the Wagner group, um, which is operating there in in the CAR, Uh, who knows. But the point is, this could trigger, ultimately, much more assertive Chinese expeditionary forces, well beyond a a non-combatant evacuation operation we saw in Sudan. Uh, This is the kind of episode that is going to build up that nationalist uh, sentiment inside China and force Xi Jinping to uh, unleash the PLA. We're going to see this at some point in the coming couple of years, I'm almost certain. So uh, stay tuned for that. Uh, And that has implications, obviously, for Taiwan scenarios. Um, In Thailand, uh, hope for democracy, that maybe General Prayut who's executed the coup nine years ago in Thailand and the military has stood up against the Democratic votes in the the past couple of decades, really. Um, Maybe there's going to be a Democratic uh, sort of winner out of this election because the Move Forward Party has built a coalition with uh, former Prime Minister Thaksin's uh, Daughters Party, um, and they have the votes to, to create a government, but the military, still under the military's constitution, the junta's constitution, will make it still difficult for that to happen. So there'll be riots on the street, though, if if they do not allow um, this new 42-year-old Harvard-educated uh, Move Forward Party leader, uh, Pita Limja Rowan uh. – <laughs> Rowan, Rowan, uh, I'm sorry, it's Pita – Limja Roanrat, um, who is going to be the next prime minister of Thailand if the military uh, abstains from the vote. So that's some of the, the headlines. There's, there's a lot more going on in terms of um, cracking down on tech theft, both in the United States. A new Department of Justice strike force has just issued five um, cases. South Koreans are cracking down on PRC tech theft. Um, and it's a uh, it's a growing, a growing business.
0: Uh, in, uh, indeed, uh, unfortunately, and unfortunately, we're uh, very uh, tight on uh, time. Uh, very quickly, Dove, uh, Anthony uh, Blinken uh, and uh, what it means. Right. I mean, some allegations uh, that somebody got it wrong, uh, that the pullout was botched uh, and an internal dissent telegram uh, that Chairman McFaul uh, has wanted. That he's not been able
2: uh, to get. So w- walk us through. Well, uh, you you summed it up pretty well. The dissent cable is something that uh, is a State Department tradition, where uh, officers uh, write back and say they don't agree with the decision or with how a decision was taken or how it was implemented. Um, Chairman McCall uh, felt that. Excuse me,
0: Chairman uh, McCall, not not uh, McFall. My apologies. Sorry about that.
2: Yeah. Chairman um uh, felt that he needed to see that cable. He got some documentation. He got a lot of documentation from the state, but he felt uh, that this cable was almost like the smoking gun as to why things went wrong and how the administration botched it. Uh, he actually had support from the ranking member for some time. Uh, so it really was a bipartisan concern. Uh, but uh, Tony Blinken, Secretary of State Blinken, felt that Uh, uh, traditionally this was never released uh, publicly because otherwise it would compromise the people who uh, had made these uh, dissents and no one would ever want to dissent again. Uh, And this went back and forth and the chairman finally threatened uh, Blinken uh, with uh, contempt of Congress, which he really didn't want to do. Uh, And uh, so the secretary uh, who had said about a month ago that he wasn't going to release anything Uh, said, yes, he's gonna release it, but he'll redact the names. Uh, There are people inside the State Department who are very unhappy. Uh, Chairman McCall was very gracious to uh, Blinken about this. Uh, And quite frankly, uh, it is important to know uh, the extent to which the administration made a mess of it. Everybody knows that they made a mess of it, but still in all, uh, if there's documentation, it's important. What's practically more important, I think, is that uh, this was resolved in a relatively amicable way. It took a long time, it took threats and this and that, but it seems to have been resolved amicably and in the current environment uh, where nothing seems to be resolved amicably, that at least is a plus.
0: Um, and uh, Michael, is there anything you wanna add on this uh, before we very quickly go to Syria and Israel and and Dove? you got a minute in which to do that. Michael, anything you wanna
1: add? No, I just I think Dove summed it up uh, perfectly. I think I add that is, uh, you know, I think McCall uh, got the outcome he wanted. And he did not want to hold blinking in contempt, as, as Dove had mentioned. And McCall is not a partisan. Uh, I've known him a long time. He's a good friend and he wants to get the right thing done. And in the end, I think this was a good solution for everybody.
0: And I uh, apologize uh, again. I had Michael McFall. Uh, on my mind uh, for uh, whatever reason, and I apologize uh, to uh, the the chairman. Uh, Dove uh, Syria real quick, but perhaps more importantly, uh, what we're seeing uh, in Israel. And really, the shift you see in Israeli approach, uh, we exchange uh, notes. And at the time, uh, there was the Israeli strike on uh, the IS leaders in Gaza. Israel used to pride itself on saying, hey, we, we got the guy in the back seat, no collateral damage, the driver even survived. Uh, we got the bad guy. Whereas this time, it was a lot messier. I think it was 15 people were killed, uh, including bystanders and, and the like. And to folks like me who spend a lot of time in Israel and would get briefed in the methodical way to reduce uh, uh, collateral damage and, and casualties. It was It's kind of been an interesting period where it seems to be maybe not as surgical as it used to be, maybe with intention. Anyway, walk us through really quickly on Syria and very quickly on, on Israel and, and what it is we're seeing there, including
2: with the demonstrations. Well, the big deal on Syria is they're back in the Arab League, and that couldn't have happened unless uh, the Saudis were ready to welcome them back, which they were. Uh, I think it's partly an attempt on the part of the Gulf Arabs in particular to help wean Syria away from the Iranians. Uh, whether they'll succeed or not, I don't know. Uh, but uh, look, uh, Mr. Assad was supposedly written off by Mr. Obama years ago. Obama's gone. Trump is gone. uh Assad is still with us. So uh, he may be playing the Saudis like he's played everybody else. But in the meantime, he's back in the Arab League, which uh, for him is a mark of respectability. Uh, on Israel, there, there are actually two things, two different demonstration subjects. The, the demonstrations that have been going on week after week about the government's uh, plan to defang the, the uh, Supreme Court have been uh, essentially put in abeyance because of the uh, attacks from Hamas and Islamic Jihad uh, and the Israeli response. Now, there have been uh, sort of demonstrations anyway, in spite of the organizers telling them not to. Uh, but uh, this has certainly helped Netanyahu. He's shifted the focus from the Supreme Court to the fight against the, uh, uh, the extremists. And uh, I suspect that's why he's a little bit less Uh, concerned about whether there's collateral damage or not. He wants to be able to show that he's hitting them. He needs that to satisfy uh, Ben Gvir, the extreme rightist, who again, by the way, boycotted Knesset votes for a while and whom he needs for uh, his coalition to continue. So this way, he's able to stop the demonstrations for the most part, somewhat satisfy the insatiable Mr. Ben Gvir. Uh, and go after uh, Islamic Jihad leaders. Now that's one whole set of demonstration issues. Yesterday was Jerusalem Day, marks the uh, anniversary of when uh, Israel conquered Jerusalem. They call it Jerusalem Day. And there is a major march by right-wingers through the old city. And of course, a lot of people said, why are you doing this? Uh, You're just gonna incite more hatred and already we're being attacked with, with all kinds of rockets. But Netanyahu said they should go ahead. Uh, There were protests against it. 10 people at least have been arrested. Uh, But again, this is Netanyahu's attempt to play to his extreme right, especially at a time, and maybe some future time we'll go into it in detail, when the religious parties are saying, you're satisfying the right-wing types, but you're not giving us the money we've asked for.
0: Uh, indeed uh, fascinating as always everybody thanks very much for joining us really appreciate it hope you guys have a terrific weekend and a great week uh, and looking forward to having you guys back on the program uh, next week and Michael uh, congratulations uh, to your daughter uh, on her uh, college uh, graduation we wish her fair winds in the following seas
1: thank you very much
0: and before we go I want to commend to the audience to check out Dove's excellent piece in the hill that criticizes South Africa for its military ties with and support Uh, of uh, Russia. Check it out.